Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Science Unscripted. Now, today we're going into something that I am really excited about, and not just because I just finished a book on fungi. Okay, so maybe because I just finished a book on fungi, but it's really, really interesting, guys. Like, it's so cool. Not gonna lie, there's huge historical context, lots of conspiracy theories, and science. Like, how can anything get better? Okay, so today we're talking about ergot. Um, you may be more familiar um, with ergotism, but ergot is pretty much what we're going to focus on today. So ergot is a group of fungi. Um, it's also the name of the singular fungus, um, but it's also like the group of fungi. Um, it's particularly from the genus Claviceps, which is very prominent, um, but ergot is one of the most prominent and wildly known, mostly because of its causes for ergotism and stuff. So um, it's... Basically, the most prominent member of Claviceps is Claviceps purpura, which is a rye ergot fungus. Um, a type of ergot fungus that grows on rye and other related plants. Um, it basically ergot and um, Claviceps purpura, which I'm definitely saying wrong. Um, purpurea, I don't know. Um, they produce alkaloids that can cause ergotism in humans and other mammals who consume grains that have been contaminated with its fruiting um, structures. Now. When I say alkaloids, um, they're basically any organic molecule that contains, they're basically organic molecules that contain a nitrogenous form, so they have nitrogen. Um, they're produced by a lot of animals. They can't be produced, I mean, a lot of plants, they can't be produced by animals, but they're usually used by plants as like a defense mechanism, like a toxin. So when you hear about alkaloids, you're usually hearing about things that are usually harmful or toxic to humans. Some alkaloids are actually really beneficial for us. There's a lot of common use in medicines and drugs. Basically, um, they're widely prolific in um, medicine and in human life, sometimes in toxic forms and sometimes in other forms. Okay, they can also, it's kind of like ergot has been like kind of controversial also throughout like medieval ages as well as like today because it does have a dual factor of being like used in medicine but then also not good for you so it can be toxic but also beneficial which honestly is a lot of things oddly enough um okay so we're gonna talk about its life cycle so ergot kernels are called a sclerotium which honestly there's a the common root is sclera i'm not sure why like sclera is also like the th outer layer of your eyes, which doesn't make any sense why it's related to ergotism, but that's fine. So, um, it's the, the little kernel, which is called a sclerotium, which is honestly kind of fun to say, so try it out. Um, but it begins its development when a spore of the ergot fungus infects a floret of flowering grass or cereal. It mimics the process of, like, a pollen grain growing into the ovary during fertilization, so it kind of, like, um, takes over what a pollen grain would do. Um, it ends up being bigger, so the, the, you can usually see that, like, anything that, like, a rye that's infected would have a bigger, pollen, like, pollen kernel-looking thing. Okay, so, for this to occur, the spore must be able to gain access to the stigma, um, which, those are the part of the plant that produces the ovules and develops into the fruit. Um, it's kind of like the middle poofy bit that you see in flowers, like that green little thing in the middle. Um, so spores generally infect plants like rye that have open flowers. Now, most plants that have open flowers are, um, cross, um, what do they call it? A cross, it's like a cross-culturing flowers. Basically, they need, like, pollen from other flowers and stuff like that to actually reproduce. So they have open flowers that, um, allow their stigma to be exposed to pollen and, like, things that travel throughout dispersal through the wind and stuff, which is taken, basically, by advantage, taken the, sorry, the, uh, ergot 
spores take advantage of this and they uh, basically take um, over the fertilization process. So, um, basically the spore is now infected the plant, um, the proliferating fungal mycelium, which is kind of like the network, um, of hyphae that the, uh, and hyphae are like extensions of the fungus, basically. Um, it's kind of like the network, if you've ever seen a fungus and you think of like the root network, that's kind of like a mycelium. It's kind of like a, uh, I think of it as like the neuronal map of a, um, this is a really bad analogy, but like if you know in your brain you have like all those connections, think of that as like the mycelium of a, um, or even like an underground. Those are like the mycelium, or even roots, really. The mycelium of a fungus is similar to that. Um, the mycelium then destroys the plant ovary and connects with the vascular bundle, which is so cool. Okay, so basically this plants have like vascular bundles that they set aside um, to send nutrients and like oxygen and carbon dioxide and all those things to like phosphorus, nitrogen, all the things that a fruit would need to create and like to be made and to provide nourishment to the seed and all that stuff. That is literally taken over by the fungus in this point of view. It's so cool. So the basically they get into the vascular structure, um, which was originally intended for the seed nutrition. Basically the fungus grows into the ovary and like commandeers its resources, which is so cool. Fungi are so awesome guys. Like I can't even stress this enough. They're so cool. So, so cool. Like, did you know that they literally use fungi and like slime molds as like research to map out like the best evasion strategies strategy sorry for like evacuations that's so cool because they can grow on their own and they have like oh it's so cool. just look into it read this book that i just read i think it's called entanglement i don't know but it was really good fungi are awesome research them if you want i will do more episodes on them because it would make me very happy okay so basically commandeers the resources next the first stage of ergot in infection is manifest itself as a soft white tissue called a i'm gonna mess this up against facilia and it produces a honeydew which is very very that's like the first stage of infection it's very very um like if you see that it's usually ergotism on rye so the honeydew um which you might think it contains mixtures of spores for insects to further disperse because insects are like oh honeydew yay they go to it they disperse the spores yay and carry out the fungus's plan to take over the world yes very cool so later the sphacelia converts into a harder dry sclerotium again inside the husk of the floret it is this during the stage that the alkaloids and lipids are actually accumulating in the sclerotium so it's got its new resources and nutrients and it's making stuff um now alkaloids are as i said they're like a classic basic naturally occurring organic molecules that contain at least one nitrogen atom um so ergot alkaloids are derived from tryptophan from l-tryptophan specifically and over there's like 80 different ergot alkaloids that have been isolated um so the ergot sclerotium contains about 0.15 to 0.5 percent alkaloids which isn't that much if you think about it but it is quite a bit to make because er making alkaloids that's expensive to the plant so obviously they have some evolutionary base um like effect and a lot of times for plants it's defense or making like making sure animals don't eat them pretty much um or think twice i guess like if you think about arsine from um like belladonna and stuff like that those usually are used for like making sure that animals don't eat it usually that's it Okay, so common part of the ergot alkaloids is a tetracyclic ring um, cycle given the name, like there's one that's been given the name of ergoline. So there's a lot of different, there's ergotamide, there's ergoline, 
there's basically all of them start with erg i mean for good reason i guess um but basically there's a lot of different alkaloids a lot of them are used in medicine today as i said or at least derivatives of them um we'll talk more about their alkaloids later on in the episode but for now we're just focusing on the life cycle so when the mature sclerotium drops to the ground and returns to the soil basically usually because the um it's infected the plant and the plant dies subsequently because it's resources have been commandeered by this really mean fungus but really cool fungus let's be honest okay so the scorpion returns to the um the soil and the fungus remains dormant until proper conditions such as like a rainy period or springtime subsequently triggers its fruiting place now the scorpion germinates um and forms one or several fruiting bodies with heads and stripes. Now, stipes are like the stem, like stocky thingy that mushrooms have that support the cap of the mushroom, and they're usually composed of like sterile hyphal tissue. Um, okay, so next, the sexual spores form in the head and are ejected simultaneously when subsequent gross, like suitable um, grass hosts are nearby and they're flowering. Basically, it waits. It's by it's biding its time, making all those resources, making all those spores, and then poof all the spores go out to affect another plant. Pretty cool. Okay, so that's the life cycle. Um, now we're going to talk a little bit about what this life cycle has done to humans. History time. Okay, so for a science person, I'm really into history, so just wait for a second while we get really cool. Okay, if you guys don't appreciate this, you're weird because this is epically awesome. First off, the name is derived from the French word argot, which means spur. Um... The earliest records of the effects of ergot were recorded, were like reported in Chinese writings in 11,100 BCE, around that time. Um, I'm gonna use BCE, by the way, because we don't use, I don't think we use the religious BC and AD anymore. Um, if I mess up, I'm sorry, but I'm gonna try using before common era and common era. Okay, so when it was used in obstetrix, which, okay, I'm really bad at saying, but basically, if you can think of obstetrician, um, obstetrics are like, basically a medicine concerned with the care of women giving birth and making sure that the birthing process goes all right. And you know this is awesome because they've been using ergot and ergot-derived medicines even today for preventing postpartum hemorrhages. That's so cool. Like, we're still using something that they used and discovered all the way back before there was even the common era, like 11,000 BC, to stop hemorrhages and protect the safety of the women. That's so cool! So, um, basically, I'll tell, talk more about why this is, but basically, um, yeah, I'm going to talk more about this because I could go on for an hour, but I'll talk about it later when I get to more of the biology of ergotism and stuff. Okay. So, um, Mesopotamian tablets in 1900 BC to 1700 BCE also reference infected grains, and 600 BCE writing on an Assyrian tablet alluded to noxious um, postules in the ear of the grain. So, it was known pretty early on. And even in Egypt, there was a lot of biblical references. Hippocrates, my main man Hippocrates, mentioned it. And um, had he noted ergot's use to stop postpartum, meno- um, sorry, postpartum hemorrhages. Um, ergot alkaloids are still used for that, as I mentioned. And um, other Greeks mentioned the infection of grain and wheat, especially during rainy seasons and really moist temperatures. So this is pretty cool. It's been known for a long time. Now let's get to where it starts really messing up. That's in the Middle Ages to the 20th century. So it was the first documented epidemic of ergotism likely occurred in 949 to 900, sorry, 944 to 945 um, BC, I mean CE. 
um, when some 20,000 people of the Aquitaine region of France, about half the population, died. 50 plus years later, 40,000 people died of the fire. Now, that was also um, a way of saying the fire is a common, like, symptom of, it's basically neuro, like, pathic pain that's caused during gangrenous and other forms of ergotism, but we'll talk about that a little bit more later. Um, but it was nicknamed the fire because it felt like fire on your skin. Pretty cool. I mean, not cool for the people who had it, but pretty cool for, I guess, no one, but still me. Okay. 18th century botanists originally thought it was a super dry due to the enlarged kernel, and it was not until 1764 when ergot was actually recognized as a fungus by Otto van Munchausen. And that's, I'm pretty sure he's not, because Baron Otto von Munchausen, I'm pretty sure he's not the guy with Munchausen diseases. I think that was from another Baron Munchausen that was a writer. I'm not sure if they're the same person. I could be completely wrong. There might be more than one Munchausen. We don't know. Well, I don't know. If you do know, let me know. Um, I've literally tried looking it up and I couldn't figure it out, but whatever. Okay, so it's common in Germany and Russia, but it's less so in UK because during the medieval ages and like during around that time, the UK had a huge distaste for rye. They literally called it the poor person's wheat, which is like so rude, but like it's wheat. Like why are you slandering wheat? But honestly, it helped them because they didn't face ergotism. They were just crazy for other reasons. Okay. So, alongside the climate of Eastern Europe being more favorable for glass cultivation, they also had that distaste. So, um, that could be why the English people didn't like it, because it wasn't favorable for them, and they were like, fine, I don't like you anyways. Basically, they're just being, throwing a pissy fit, but whatever. We love English people, just so you know. Yeah, we love English people. <laughs> okay. Um, it first was described in 1582 um, in an appendix for rye, and then actually illustrated in 1658. But then in 1850s, it was Louis René, I'm going to say his name so badly, Toulouse, okay, I'm not even going to try. Louis René, basically, he described the full life cycle of ergot. And it was observed as early as 1597 that ergotism could be linked to um, blighted rye grain, um, but it wasn't until the 1770 to like 1777 that the actual epidemics um, and outbreaks of ergotism in Europe um, basically permitted the, like, led to the induction of new legislation in France and elsewhere, basically in Europe, to try and contain this problem. So in the 19th and 20th century, more outbreaks occurred with similar symptoms of ergotism um, that I have been very careful not to mention yet, even though I really want to, because we're going to talk about that later pretty much now. However, I cannot go the entire podcast without mentioning some of the conspiracy theories. First off, we got the dancing plague. Now, you might have heard of the dancing plague it was kind of like this thing um where people in france i think there was about like 400 people in this little town in france they and also there was dancing plagues elsewhere in the world this is just one that we're going to focus on basically they one lady started dancing and she couldn't stop and she basically continued dancing despite having for tons of hours despite having bruises and horribly messed up feet and they these people all started dancing basically on their own and, well, they were, like, in circles, usually, and, um, they actually, like, they didn't seem like they really wanted to. They were really unhappy about this. Everyone was like, oh, let's find them. Maybe that'll get them stopped. They also were, the officials were also like, oh, maybe they just need to get dancing out their system, so let's just set up a stage for them. That's crazy. Um, that did not work. So, basically, there's this mania of dancing that occurred, and a lot of people speculated that it could be ergotism, but it 
might have been gangrenous didn't make sense um that was a form of ergotism because as we said and i will say um no limbs fell off during this period or were documented which is symptomatic of gangrenous ergotism alongside this in convulsive ergotism it's more like convulsive erratic movements but they weren't dancing and everyone who described this dancing panic usually described it as dancing, which is definitely not characteristic of a, any convulsive disorder that I've heard of. So, especially ergotism. So, one of the main theories is that it was a um, mass hysteria, which is not a really good term for it. Today, we use more like, um, what is it called? I think it's mice, mass psychogenic diseases. Basically, just, um, there's a lot of theories, but it wasn't ergotism most likely. So, just know that ergotism while a cool idea for it is probably not the cause of the dancing plague. Next one that we're going to talk about is the Salem Witch Trials. This one has a little bit more evidence. There was a really, really good paper. Um, I think it was 1976 published by this lady, well, this doctor, who basically argued that, um, we will soon find out that ergotism, um, ergot infection follows basically a rainy and then like a dry period with winds and that did occur in salem before the witch trials they also drank a lot of cider which was a wheat drink because the water a lot of the water was too contaminated so that could explain why most people got like hallucinations ergotism does cause hallucinations a lot of the time it has neuropathic disorders i mean um neuropathic and neurological symptoms usually because if you've ever heard of lsd that's they're both lysergic acid their alkaloids are very similar in form to lsd so that can cause hallucinations in ergotism so that could be and it can also com cause um formication which is like a feeling of run ants running on your skin it can cause convulsions it can cause um, nausea, GT, um, GIT symptoms, it can cause neurological symptoms, and it can cause, um, like, uh, feelings of, conv like, convulsions and all that stuff. It's so basically a lot of the symptoms that these women during the Salem witch trials were reporting, and they were blaming it on witches. However, we're not too sure if it does make sense, because while it's a really, really cool theory, um, not a lot of people were affected, like, not many men. It seemed like it primarily affected women, um, which wouldn't make sense because a lot of men were more cider drinkers. Um, it didn't really affect anyone who was a farmer, so that wouldn't really make sense because it would usually affect people who were actually interacting with the rye a little bit more, at least it should. Um, it also didn't affect children, who children are a little bit more susceptible to ergotism, which doesn't make sense because, like, I think the youngest person was 14 or maybe 6, um, during the Salem Witch House to report any hallucinations and stuff like that or symptoms, so it doesn't really make that much sense. Um, but it is a con- it is, like, a good- it is, like, an idea. It's a cool idea. But, okay, so that's gonna be the conspiracy theories. Look into them. They're awesome. Um, now we're going to talk a little bit about the biology because it's science and we're on a science podcast so we kind of got to do that so um firstly um the growth of ergot can be produced by a conjunction of climate um like stuff so basically like specific climates climatic circumstances sorry i cannot speak um the important factors are a wet season which favors germination of the sclerodia followed by a dry and windy spell which favors the dissemination basically the dispersion of the spores of the fungus to find um some rye to and like stem to um stigma sorry to uh, infect 
So there's three forms of ergotism, although two are the most widely known, the two being gangrenous and convulsive, but there's also gastrointestinal ergotism that is kind of newer. Um, some people don't really consider it a category, they just clump it in with the other two. But basically, gangrenous is due to the vasoconstrictive effects of ergotism. Um, that has also been indicated and used as a cure for migraines and, as I said, postpartum um, hemorrhages. Basically, it causes vasoconstriction, usually because it mimics the effects of serotonin, which is a very, very similar molecule and form. Um, so you guys have probably heard of the neurotransmitter serotonin. It has a lot of effects, usually called like the happy chemical or something, but one of its effects is that A, there's a lot of serotonin receptors in the uterus, so they, it's just cool that it is. But basically what happens is that serotonin is quite a potent vasoconstrictor, so um, it is thought that ergot alkaloids can basically mimic this effect of serotonin and work as a vasoconstrictor. So they can basically, migraines is just an extreme rush of blood to the head. Um, a lot of, it's basically, I think it's pretty much caused by like high blood flow and high blood pressure in the brain. And so you can use that as a cure for migraines as well. Um, but gangrene, basically, if you've ever heard of it, it's when you have insufficient oxygen to your tissues. So they basically just die. Now this is not good and it's, very not good in this case either. So gangrenous is also called sometimes St. Anthony's. That can be used for all of them, but it's usually called St. Anthony's fire due to the monk's treatment. There was like this monk called the St. Anthony's monks who were really famous for their treatment of ergotism. Basically what happened is that they take people away from their home and put them in this monk's sanctuary and they'd get better. And that's usually because they were removed from the infected rye that they were eating. Um, so not necessarily because monks are all powerful. The fire part was due to the feeling accompanied by the falling off of the limbs and neuropathy that was associated with that. So it's like, what would happen is that you would literally have decreased oxygen perforation to your limbs. Usually your external limbs, like, I think it was like 60 to 70% in your um, legs and feet, basically because they're your most distal parts of your body. So that's where vasoconstriction usually has its highest effects. Um, and basically if you're... If you clamp down on the blood vessels, which is what vasoconstriction is, you are getting less blood, and blood is what carries oxygen. So your tissues are getting less oxygen, and then they start to die off. And what can actually people would notice is that you could literally just touch them and they just pop off. And now this would sound kind of painless, but it's definitely not. There was the fire symptom that basically felt like your body was on fire, and that is not fun. That's because a lot of it also affected the nerves that were, because nerves need oxygen too. So a lot of times they were affecting the nerves around it, which is a form of neuropathy, which is like pain of your nerves. Um, so you did feel this, which is not fun. The next one is convulsive um, ergotism. That's usually accompanied by like spasms, diarrhea, um, paresthesias. Um, I think it had a lot of mania, um, psychoactive headaches, um, psychosis, not psychoactive headaches, psychosis, sorry, headaches, nausea, vomiting, formication, which is like, again, ants, like feeling like they're crawling up your skin, which sounds horrible, um, leg shaking. Um, so basically convulsive was like what you might think of when you think of like seizures and stuff, which is why a lot of ergotism was like um, sometimes misdiagnosed. Um, basically ergotism can usually be misdiagnosed because it presents in so many different ways. Um, next is gastrointestinal ergotism, which is basically just GIT symptoms. Um, Next, it was suggested that there could be a difference in which one presented in you because of a lack of vitamin A, but that 
was suggested to be a difference, but the evidence is really lacking. And um, there's a lot of studies that don't show that correlation. There's also thought that the different types of alkaloids produced by ergot could do it, but again, no correlation really proved. And they also thought it could be like the strain of ergot, but again, not really any strong correlation. And lastly, um, it's been kind of like produced, or not produced, but pronounced that it might be more like environmental, like where you live, what um, circumstances and what climate you're exposed to, or even like personal, like what your immune system is like and how biologically like receptive you are to these different chemicals. Um, so ergot alkalis, as I said, they resemble serotonin, so they can emulate its effect, um, mainly its vasoconstrictive effects. Um, LSD, as I mentioned, is also very similar, basically in its hallucination form, so that's why a lot of symptoms mimic the forms of LSD, because LSD is actually, it just stands for lysergic acid diethylamyl, I cannot speak, okay, LSD stands for lysergic acid diethylamide, which is, I'm definitely saying that wrong. We're going to go with it. It's going to be great, guys, because I literally want to be a doctor and I'm not going to be able to pronounce anything. So my patients are just going to laugh at me all the time. They're going to enjoy it, at least. That Maybe I'll make them happier. Okay. So, um, basically, alkaloids from ergot are also lysergic acid derivatives. So they can emulate its effects pretty widely, which is hence the hallucination. And hence why they think it could be from the Salem witch trials as well. I guess not from the Salem witch trials, but a potential cause of the Salem witch trials. Okay, so we know that basically the ergot alkaloids do emulate the effects of serotonin. They also share attributes that are very similar to um, lysergic acid. Um, oh, not lysergic acid, but LSD, mostly because of their similarity in function, which similarity in function is due most in part to shape, and um, which you might know from chemistry or um, biochemistry or even just biology, structure is function. That applies to a lot of enzymes, but it also applies to proteins, um, other chemicals. Basically, structure is function is pretty, it's kind of like a mantra that's been said in a lot of biology. So, um, naturally occurring ergot alkaloids, they exert their effects on dopamine, serotonin, and adrenaline neurotransmitter receptor sites. Um, they act either as a partial agonist or antagonist, so meaning that they either reinforce the effects or um, kind of like turn off, kind of dim or hinder the effects. Um, uh, so basically they disrupt brain dopaminergic and serotonergic mechanisms in the central nervous system as well as inhibiting activity of um, the sodium potassium ATAs, ATPS pumps. Um, these are very essential to neurons and just me neuron membrane potentials and basically cell communication. So, um, hence why a lot of, there's a lot of neuropathic, um, effects that occur with ergotism and ergot poisoning. So, um, activity of the ergot alkaloids, um, and the toxic stuff is still largely unknown, um, so that's why this biology section isn't that as in-depth as other ones, and I haven't been able to tell you, like, specific names and how it specifically works, like, specific mechanisms, um, but that is, it does act on, it has been shown to act on dopaminergic and serotonergic, um, receptor sites, which is cool. So, how that affects us all today. I mean, like, it's pretty cool to learn all about this history and all these conspiracy theories, but it doesn't really show any effects today. Um, what's different 
um, is that ergotivism does still occur. Obviously not in, like, the 40,000 and 20,000 outbreak epidemic stuff that we see back in olden times when they didn't have good ways to hold their rye or good laws that kind of maintained some form of health infrastructure. Um, but ergotism does still occur. Um, since, again, René, I can never say his name, René Toulasne, René Toulasne? Toulasne? I don't know. Um, since he discovered the connection between rye and ergotism in the 17th century, public health um, organization has increased their efforts to address ergot contamination and basically lower the outbreaks. Um, so basically the larger outbreaks and epidemics seen in history are very rare now. Um, many outbreaks do occur. Um, not Again, not as common though, and it hasn't really occurred for the last couple of years. But um, human outbreaks do occur sometimes, usually in countries that are lower in socioeconomic development, such as like India, Brazil, and Ethiopia, basically companies that don't have similar infrastructure and they don't have um, health support systems that are available or agricultural practices that are being firmly regulated by and correlated with health practices. Um, so again, it's another instance in medical science where you see... Um, underprivileged people, people who have lack of resources or lack of access to resources and lack of infrastructure being hit the hardest, but that's okay. That's not okay. So ergot medication, on the other hand, ergot medications that we use for like postpartum hemorrhaging um, or even migraines or honestly, ergot alkaloids are used in a lot of medications. So any ergot medication that has been taken has a chance to lead to ergotism. Obviously they're controlled and diluted nowadays. So to have in the pharmaceutical industry to have any ergot poisoning is rare, but it does occur. So to when diagnosing, if you know someone is taking an ergot alkaloid medication, you can take that as a history and then look for the signs and symptoms. Like, are they having, there's obviously different signs and symptoms for each type of ergotism, but we can go break it into normally like three categories, neurological, um, blood vessel symptoms, and gastrointestinal systems. So, symptoms, sorry. So, the neurological symptoms would be like dizziness, headaches, convulsions, psychosis, basically anything that you saw in like, um, I think it was the convulsive, yeah, convulsive ergotism. Then GIT, so gastrointestinal, would be like nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, cramps, um, and diarrhea. Now the blood vessel symptoms, again, if you see someone's limbs falling off and you see gangrene everywhere, maybe that's a symptom. But in less severe cases, um, you have constriction for prolonged periods, which is actually called vasospasm. Um, about 60% to 70% of this is in the feet or the legs. Again, peripheral tissues are... Um, a little bit more affected. There's coolness, paleness, because dilation um, leads to like more of a flush skin. Constriction actually leads to more of white skin, sometimes even blue. Um, that's how you can tell if someone is like, usually you can tell like oxygen deprivation or tissue perforate, low tissue perforation. It's usually like paleness or um, having like bluer skin. Uh, um, okay, next. Uh, you got... Yes, so muscle pain will also be accompanied by uh, vasospasm because that is not fun. Um, basically, muscle pain or, like, usually on activity beginning, and but then it progresses to just having muscle pain at rest, which is not good. 
um, obviously there's gangrene and thrombosis, which thrombosis is just the formulation of clots, um, so if you have increased thrombosis, that's also a symptom. So, um, basically how people diagnose this, again, if you are taking ergot alkaloid derived medicine and you have some of those symptoms, a doctor can usually say like, yeah, there's a probability they have ergotism. Um, it can, because ergotism outside of having medication can present in so many ways, they usually do, it's usually up to, like, having a really, really strong history, knowing what they've eaten, where they've, what things they've come in contact with, alongside a physical exam, x-ray scans, and angiography, so that's, like, measuring, um, kind of, like, a graph and picture of the heart kind of thing, um, blood tests, so if the angiography shows an abrupt narrowing of, um, arteries, this is, like, again, the dilation, I mean, not the dilation, the, um, constriction of blood vessels, um, that would be an indication of ergotism. So, what they would say is, like, discontinue the the ergot-derived drugs, um, also stop taking caffeine and tobacco, because those are also vasoconstrictors, um, they do not help. Um, next, there's also antiplatelet therapy to reduce the formation of clots, because again, if you have vasoconstriction plus clots, that can lead to obstruction, which can lead to an increase in, um, lack of oxygen. Well, I guess I said that wrong, like, it wouldn't be an increase in lack of oxygen, it would just be a decrease in overall oxygen perfusion, so decrease in oxygen, that would be great. Next, you can have surgery to actually remove any dead tissue, um, because again, gangrene isn't just like, dead tissue, what can occur is that, um, the dead tissue can actually become a breeding ground for bacteria. A lot of bacteria, um, thrive in conditions such as that, and that can then lead to viral or bacterial infections that progress into the rest of the body. So, removing that dead tissue, um, the necrotized tissue is also sometimes necessary. So, that can all be caused by simply eating a little tiny fungi, which is, if you think about it, fungi are powerful, and they're going to rule the world one day, and wasn't that the theme of The Last of Us? I think it was. Whatever. Basically, fungi are awesome, and I really just wanted to make this episode because, A, I just read a book on fungi, and I felt like it was awesome, and I wanted to share it with you guys, and B, ergotism is so cool, and I will always appreciate a good conspiracy theory. Especially one about the Salem Witch Trials. I was obsessed with the Salem Witch Trials when I was younger. Okay, but that's off topic. Anyways, I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. I hope you guys stay curious. Enjoy the rest of your day or night or evening or whatever time zone you're in. Thank you guys for listening and being so awesome. Reach out to us if you want at scienceunscripted13 at gmail.com. You guys can send us recs um, for different topics. uh, Whatever you want to do. Give us criticism, anything. But feel free to reach out. Have a nice day, guys. Bye.